Welcome to Sisterhood. Welcome to a new semester. I'm so excited, yeah. Welcome to all of our campuses that are joining us. We are so thrilled to be nine campuses and coming together as women, as Sisterhood. And we wanna welcome any new first-time visitors to Sisterhood, and we just want you to feel so welcome. Uh, Sisterhood is a really safe place. We say this every time we start a new semester because we want anyone that's new to know that uh, what happens at our tables, um, what we talk about stays at our tables. And it's a great, it's a safe place, it's a confidential place, and it's a place that we want all of you to open up and um, just share what's going on in your life because we wanna do life together. And we want to encourage you, and we always speak life. And so welcome, welcome to Sisterhood. We're doing something really new. Uh, we have never done um, just a book of the Bible study before. And so we are going to be studying the book of James. And it's one of my favorite books. When they ask me, they're like, which one should we do first? I'm like, James. I love James. It's so full, and it's so rich. And there are five, only five chapters in James, but we're going to take uh, one chapter every two weeks. So half a chapter a week is what we're going to do. So that'll give us time to really dig in and get all the meat out of it. And we have these bookmarks for everyone. And so this will tell you every week the, the chapter and verses that we're going to be studying. So this should be really helpful to you. So add James to your Bible reading. I know um, a lot of us are doing the the soap sprint through the whole New Testament in the month of January. So if you're doing that, I am loving it and I hope you are too. So this is only half a chapter, so don't worry. It's not more, I know it's, it's a lot from what we're used to doing, but it's, it's so good. So add that um, to your weekly reading. And the writer of this book obviously was James, we're certain of that, but we're not quite certain which James it was. Scholars believe that this was not the disciple James, but it was actually the half-brother of Jesus, James. And he actually didn't even believe like that Jesus was the Messiah until after he was resurrected from the dead. So that's pretty interesting. But after that, he believed and he was all in, which is our theme for this year. If you were here this past weekend, Rob talked about hold nothing back. And so our theme for Sparkle this year is all in. So we are just um, coming together with our themes and so excited for this year, 2020. Hold nothing back, we're all in. Now James spoke a lot about faith and works. And specifically he stressed that genuine faith will produce a demonstration of our relationship with Jesus. Basically what that means is if we're saved, we need to act like we're saved. Now our actions don't produce our salvation, right? We know that we are saved by grace through faith, so we're not saved by our actions, but once we have that relationship with him, our works become a natural outflow. So there will be works that back up our words. The New Spirit-Filled uh, Spirit Life Bible says it this way, the message of James speaks especially to those who are inclined to talk their way to heaven instead of walk their way there. So this tells us that we can't just say that we're a believer in Christ. We can't just say we're saved and live however we want to live. If we truly believe in Jesus, we will walk with him and in him. Now it's not going to happen all at once. Obviously we have to grow in this and we won't do it perfectly, but James encourages us to act on the faith that we have and keep growing. 
When we put our faith in Jesus, this will happen naturally as we pursue him. And then as we grow in him, the evidence of our faith shows up in the way we live. Now, James is a very practical book, and it instructs the believer on how faith works itself into our lives. And it counters the teaching that says, if you have God's grace, then you can live however you wanna live. That's not true. Grace covers sin, but it's not a license to sin. So again, great, our works don't save us. We're saved by grace, but the works prove that we believe it. So let's begin our, our study of this amazing book in James. James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. All right, verse one. Now it's interesting the way that James starts this out because he says, James, a servant of God. He doesn't say James, the brother of Jesus, or James, a leader in the church. He specifically wants people to know that he is a servant and he has the attitude of a servant. So this is really important in the way he starts it out. He's honoring that position of being a servant. And he's, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered to the nations. And this is referring to the Jewish Christians who had been persecuted and they left to go to Judea and Samaria and um, to preach the gospel there. And it was written as a guide to help them navigate these different cultures that were different from Israel. So once James had greeted everyone, he jumped right into a really heavy topic about having joy in trials. So let's look at verses two through four. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now this is a familiar passage for probably many of you, but it's not really one that we would put up maybe in our homes, like on a plaque, or I know a lot of us have those painted signs now, they're really fun. I know I have a big one in my kitchen, it says trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But having joy in trials is not a verse that we really put out there. And when we're not going through a trial, we're easy to say that like, yeah, have joy in trials, and we believe it. And then when we're in the middle of one, it's the last thing we wanna hear, right? But I think if we really understood what this meant, we would be actually rejoicing in our trials. Now the key to having joy in trials is in the word knowing in verse three. James said to count it all joy knowing. Now this word knowing in the Greek means to be aware of, to perceive, to be resolved, to be sure, to understand. In other words, we can be joyful because we know that the existence of these trials means something. We're aware that they will be used for our benefit. We perceive that there's more to our situation than what, just what our senses tell us. We are resolved to cooperate with God and trust Him through it. And we understand that we will exit the trial better than when we entered it. Those are all great things. Now imagine with me, if you will, and this is not hard in the middle of January, but imagine your favorite vacation spot or where you would rather be right now. So 
Is it like a five-star resort on the beach? Is it a cabin in the woods? Whatever that looks like, just imagine that. And then imagine if you were given directions to this place and it said, right before you get to your destination, right before you get to this amazing resort or this beautiful cabin, there's gonna be a really bad potholed road. It's gonna be full of potholes. It's gonna be really hard to travel, but don't worry, right after that potholed road is gonna be your beautiful destination. Well, after you traveled a long time and you got to the potholed road, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking, yes, I'm almost there, right? You would be happy even though you're going through the potholes and your car is having a really hard time, you would be happy because you know we're almost to our destination. Well, God doesn't put the potholes in the road, but he does use them. And it isn't the trial itself that's producing the complete character in you. James says that it's your tested faith in God that does this. So it's just the trial that's presenting the opportunity for your faith. So James isn't asking us to embrace our trial, them, the trials themselves. He's telling us to celebrate the work that God will do as he uses that trial for our benefit. So don't cooperate with the trial. You cooperate with God in the trial. The joy comes with the understanding that God is at work. The trial's not at work, but God is at work. So let's talk about how this testing of faith produces all this good. Paul said in Romans 5, 3 through 5, and I'm reading in the Amplified, it says, Moreover, let us also be full of joy now. Let us exult and triumph in our troubles and rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that pressure and affliction and hardship produce patient and unswerving endurance. And endurance, fortitude, develops maturity of character, approved faith, and tried integrity. And character of this sort produces the habit of joyful and confident hope of eternal salvation. Such hope never disappoints or deludes or shames us, for God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul used that same word, knowing. He said when troubles come, we can exult and triumph and rejoice in them because we know what is happening. We know the trials are giving us an opportunity to prove an unswerving endurance. We know a maturity of character is the result of this endurance. We know that when we have this character, joyful confidence will follow. And we know this hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God that the Holy Spirit pours out, pours out in our hearts. That's a lot. It does a lot, that knowing. Now, anyone can have faith for a few minutes, but when time passes and nothing happens, that's when our faith is tested. When our faith is tested, it provides us with an opportunity to prove the genuineness of our faith. And this should give us joy. When we can prove our faith is genuine, it should bring us joy. And if we really understand what Paul and James are saying, our attitude would be like, oh, look, a trial, great. This is gonna be an opportunity to prove to myself and to God where my faith really lies. Now, patience in trials is not passive. It isn't a matter of just waiting out the trial, holding on. I mean, how many times do you talk to a girlfriend, they're just like, oh, I'm just waiting. 
I'm waiting for thing, this to just pass. And we're like, oh, this too shall pass. You know, we'll give them some little saying. But they're just waiting and waiting and waiting, and they're not doing anything in the waiting. Patience isn't a defensive position. It's an offensive position. It's really faith over a prolonged period of time, and faith is powerful. So then we can say that patience is power over time. I love that. Patience is power over time. Let's say that together. Patience is power over time. Your patient trust in the Lord is actively doing a work in you. And that work is to make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, perfect doesn't mean sinless. That's not what it means. It's referring to a wholly developed character. It means to be mature, full, and whole. And if this is what you want to be, then you have to be willing to believe over time. You can't have the benefits of tested faith that James and Paul are talking about here unless we're determined to believe and let the time pass. Now, having this response of rejoicing in trials, it's not an emotional response. It's a deliberate one. It's intentional. It's a choice. We have to decide to view it this way because how many know it's not a natural response? Our natural response is to complain and worry. That's what comes naturally. So we have to decide to view this trial as, as a means of growth in us. We have to be okay with the potholes if we're going to reach our destination. So let's move on to verses 5 through 8. It's not surprising that after we're talking about joy and trials, James tells us that we need to ask for wisdom. That makes sense. He said in verses 5 through 8, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So if you need wisdom, you need to ask God for it. And if you ask God for it, you need to believe that he's going to give it to you. This means when you pray and ask him for wisdom, then you don't get up from wherever you're praying and then go back to worrying and wringing your hands, right? I know that's so hard to do, but when we pray and we ask him for wisdom and we give it to him, we can't then hold on to it. Why do we still worry about it? It's, it's just human nature. It's something we have to learn to do. And to keep from worrying, I think it helps us to remember who we're praying to, right? We are praying to the God of the universe. He created everything. He knows everything about us. So why wouldn't he know what to do in our situation? Of course he does. We need to remember that. God said, just ask. And in this context, the wisdom that we're asking for has to do with trials. So we might ask him, what is the purpose of this trial? God, do I need to change my behavior? Um, how should I respond or not respond? Those are questions we can say, God, give me wisdom. Should I speak up or not? Should I respond? What way should I respond? We need to ask God for that 
and then believe because he's the one who really knows. He has the best answer for us. So instead of going to the internet, which we usually would do when we have a question, right? We need to go to the Lord. Instead of going to Google, go to God, right? That was a pretty good one. I like that. <laughs> Don't go to Google, go to God. He's the one that gives wisdom. He gives it liberally, generously, not condescendingly. He wants us to have wisdom in our situation, not only so that we can safely and correctly maneuver through our trial, but he wants us to learn to hear from him and learn to trust him. We just want to see God move in our situation. A lot of times we're just like, God, get me through this, get me through this, get me through this. And he wants us to let him move in our hearts. He wants to do an amazing work in us. And he will do the work if we provide the faith. Again, James is very clear that faith is required. And he's also very clear that this faith must be singularly focused. He talks about a double-minded man. What is that? We're double-minded when we vacillate between two opposing sides of an issue, right? In regards to faith in God, a double-minded person can intellectually agree with God and his word, but at the same time, we can agree with the doctor or our boss or our circumstances that aren't correct. Jesus, or James said that when we are double-minded, we are unstable. Unstable means inconstant, prone to change or to recede from a purpose, not steady or fixed, changeable. So if I'm unstable in my faith, I'm up one minute and down the next. I believe God one day and I, I doubt him the next. I agree with the promises of God, but then I also look at my circumstances, right? It's just this wavering, vacillating, and that's not what God wants. James says one who does this is unstable in all their ways, not just in this one way of asking for wisdom through trials, but an unstable woman is unfocused and changeable and recedes from her purpose because she's trying to focus her attention on two different directions at once. The testing of faith has made her inconsistent focus very obvious and it proves that her character is not yet complete. Matthew 6.22 says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Jesus used this analogy of a physical eye to make a point about spiritual vision. If our eye is single upon Jesus, then our lives will be flooded with the light of his life and his word. We need focus in a single direction to have this light. We can't have two directions for our faith if we expect to get that wisdom from God. We need a single focus. When we know what God said, when we know what he promised, there's no need to look in another direction. I know, again, it's hard. Our circumstances are all around us. But if our circumstances don't line up with the word of God, then we don't need to consider them. We need to consider his truth only. Faith believes. Faith is constant assurance. It doesn't waver. So don't be double-minded. Have that singular focus. All right, moving on to verses 9 through 11. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position but the rich should take pride in their humiliation 
since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now the first half of chapter one is talking about trials. And it's interesting that a discussion of poverty and wealth would come into that. But the enticement of the world is really a trial for us. If you think about it, whether we have too little or too much, it can be a trial and it can result in spiritual disaster. If we have too little and no faith in God, that will leave us in despair. If you have too much with no faith in God, you can just depend on yourself, depend on your wealth, think, you know what, I'm a self-made person, I don't need God. But James tells us how to handle either trial. He said the poor are to rejoice in their spiritual position as a child of God, which is far more valuable than earthly wealth. The rich are to realize how temporary earth's riches are and, and, the, and to focus on laying up treasures in heaven. So the cure for either wrong mindset is to remember that this earth is a temporary condition. Both groups are to consider the reality of eternity. And that perspective helps so much. Think about it. If you don't have enough and you're worried every day, how am I going to get by? Just remembering this earth is so temporary. My home is in heaven. God's going to supply all my needs. And if you have a lot, that's great. You can give a lot to the kingdom of God, but then don't depend on that because riches easily fade. So money, whether the lack or the abundance of it, is a tool that measures our connection to this world. Think about that. Either condition carries with it a test of our alliance. Will we trust in God or will we trust in our wealth? 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes on, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We can see earthly wealth, so that means it falls under the category of temporary. Whether you have it or whether you don't, there's freedom in understanding that it won't last. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Jesus and James both remind us that it's eternal wealth that lasts forever. So it's foolish to focus on one, what won't last. So trials are the theme of the first part of chapter one. Trials of all kinds, even the trials of things that we would consider good like wealth. But James tells us that trials and wisdom go together. He tells us that we don't need to navigate our trials without the wisdom of God. A potholed road with no destination is not something to celebrate. It's actually miserable. Just think, if you were just on a potholed road going nowhere, that would be miserable. We can only celebrate when we know where we're going. So if your faith is being tested, trust in the wisdom of God to navigate those trials and rejoice that you're on a road that leads to something great. It's worth the journey, so don't give up. Keep going on your journey. Amen?
Amen. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for what it says about the trials that we go to, God, that we can rejoice knowing that great things are ahead because you will work in that trial for our good. So God, we do pray for wisdom. We pray that you would give us just wisdom as we navigate through the trials of life, God, which way to go, what to say, what not to say, how to respond, God. Give us your wisdom, Lord, and help us remember that everything on earth here is temporary, God. We live for the eternity, God. We live for the well done. So we thank you, God, for this word, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.